Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to another episode of the 219 Podcast. I am your host, David Driscoll, and we are back today to talk about the wine industry. Now, I know that many of you who listen to this podcast are probably here to learn something about bourbon or find out something cool about scotch or the whiskey side of the business, but I want to talk about my trip to Santa Cruz this week briefly and the excitement that I'm feeling for what's happening in the Santa Cruz Mountains right now. When I was there with Cole Thomas and the team from Madsen Wines doing some video work and looking at the vineyards where they're currently sourcing their fruit, we were driving to these remote hilltop locations past huge redwood trees uh, through, uh, through old clearings where Chardonnay and Pinot Noir have been planted now for decades, if not 100 years. And I was overwhelmed and overcome with a nostalgia both for my childhood and for the old days of winemaking in California. I don't know how much time a lot of you have spent in Santa Cruz or if you live in California, but when I was a kid, Santa Cruz was everything. Santa Cruz in the 1980s with the beach boardwalk was just the epicenter of cool and kooky, skateboarding, surf culture, punk culture. Uh, if you remember the 1987 film, The Lost Boys, the vampire film with Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland, that is such a still such an iconic part of my childhood. And ev- anybody who grew up in the 80s will associate Santa Cruz with The Lost Boys. And then in the 1990s, Santa Cruz was a mecca for me. I went up there all the time during high school. My friends and I would go camping out on the beach. They would surf and smoke cigarettes and just sit outside and be young. And even throughout college, I had friends that went to UC Santa Cruz. It's always been the coolest, kookiest place in, in a Bay Area culture that is doesn't really resemble anything that it did in the 1980s. It's one of the last holdouts that feels like it did when I was young and continues to feel that way today. I contrast this to what's happening in Napa and Sonoma, where... Sometimes it resembles Disneyland with these huge estates and fountains and, you know, some guy playing a lute. Or you have bombastic pricing based off of this hippy-dippy organic culture that is trying to sell you on the idea of terroir, uh, which isn't necessarily untrue. There's a lot of amazing sites in Napa and Sonoma, but I find them sort of homogenous now and... I feel like winemaking in California sort of lost its humility and its and its roots to a certain extent, where everybody's playing French. But whereas Paul Masson, who was actually French, and Martin Ray were working off of the French winemaking practices in order to make better wine in California, there's this cool kid culture formulating in other California winemaking regions that takes pride in pointing out how not Californian they are. That's where I want to start talking about Santa Cruz and its history. So without further ado, let me tell you a little bit about real winemaking in California, where it began, who started it, and why Santa Cruz needs to be your top destination for the next time you want to take a trip to California wine country. If you look at the cheapest bottle of alcohol in any California corner liquor store, I'm willing to bet that it is a 750 of Palmason VSOP brandy produced by Gallo here in California. In most stores, you can find it for $7.99 or even cheaper. That's for a 750. And there are 200 milliliters, I think, that sell for $2. That's sort of like 
George T. Stagg 70 years from now selling for $10.99 and being one of the cheapest, grossest spirits on any whiskey shelf? It's hard to imagine now because of the reputation of George T. Stagg today, but Paul Masson, as far as I know, didn't even make brandy. Paul Masson is an immigrant who moved here from France in the 1800s and planted some of the original Pinot Noir and Chardonnay vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains that were brought over with him from Burgundy. The history of winemaking in California starts with Almaden Vineyards, which is California's first registered winery in 1852. If you remember, California as a state only dates back to 1848, where it was taken from Mexico during the Mexican-American War, and land grants were awarded afterwards. San Juan Batista and the Santa Clara Valley were a part of that land grant, and a French immigrant from Bordeaux named Etienne Tay was able to purchase a small piece of land in the San Jose area near the Santa Cruz Mountains, and he planted it to mission grapes. Eventually, he's joined at the winery by his neighbor, a man named Charles Lefranc. And Charles Lefranc ends up marrying Etienne Tay's daughter and inheriting the winery. Charles Lefranc is the man who brings the first cuttings of French varieties over and, in conjunction with Etienne Tay, begins planting them at the Almaden Vineyard site. Eventually, Paul Masson emigrates from Burgundy and meets Charles Lefranc and begins working with him. And Paul Masson ends up marrying Charles Lefranc's daughter. So now he's part of this heritage. And when Charles Lefranc's son Henry is killed in a trolley accident in San Francisco, Paul Masson becomes the heir, along with Charles Lefranc's daughter, to the winery. Now, with that inheritance, he buys a huge tract of land up near Saratoga and begins taking those Chardonnay and Pinot Noir vines and the cuttings, and he plants them up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. However, back then, he wasn't making single varietal Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or even blends. He was using those wines to make California champagne. So Paul Masson becomes known for his amazing sparkling wines that were grown out of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Now, Paul Masson ends up working with a kid named Martin Ray, And Martin Ray is who I really want to focus on today. He's sort of the godfather of fine wine in California. And that starts in Santa Cruz, not in Napa or Sonoma. I know so many people who move to California to work in the tech industry in the Bay Area. They work at Google or Facebook or uh, Salesforce, whatever. And they're from Massachusetts or they're from... Kentucky, and they become enamored with California and the fact that they're, you know, Bay Area people now, and they should try to do what Bay Area people do, go up to Napa on the weekend and join a wine club and get into the whole California living, California cuisine. And the Napa and Sonoma, California fantasy is still so strong in these transplant communities. It's just sort of a rite of passage for a lot of these people. And what I want to iterate to those of you who feel this way is to not shy away from those feelings because it's one of the many, many perks of living in California is your access to great wine, great produce, great food, great uh, everything. We're one of the you know one of the best places to live in the United States. That's why the entire country's homeless population has moved here. But for those of you who want the authentic San Francisco Bay Area wine experience, it all really starts in Santa Cruz. And more than Napa and Sonoma, Santa Cruz still resembles the California 
of 40 years ago or even 100 years ago. This part of California, more than any other part that I've been to, and I drive all over California all the time, still is rooted in the heritage that made it famous in the first place. You know, this is Steinbeck country. This is East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath. It still feels that way. And going to Santa Cruz and spending time with the kids from Madsen this week, we're driving up, you know, steep winery roads, going through forest clearings with 100-year-old redwoods and looking at these heritage vineyards, making wine the same way that it was made in the 1940s. And in the 1940s, a guy named Martin Ray, who ends up purchasing Paul Masson's winery, then selling it so he can take the money and form Mount Eden up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is still one of California's great wineries today, he starts making single varietal wines that resemble the great wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy. He's making pure Chardonnays, pure Pinot Noirs, pure Cabernets. Not only is he making single varietal wines, he is doing it with an attention to detail that has never been done in the state. This is really where fine wine in California begins. It begins with Martin Ray in the 1940s. He goes on a crusade against every other winemaker in California. He calls out all these guys that are making Chablis and Burgundy when it's really just field blends of whatever overripe grapes they have out there. There was no attention to to detail at that time. Martin Ray was a guy selling 10-year-old wines that he held back in his cellar because he didn't trust the public to know how to sell her wines. So he holds back the vintages until he thinks they're ready to drink. He sells them for a price that has never been charged for California wines up until this point. And he is dogmatic about how to make wine, about spraying with sulfur. I mean, this guy's making natural wines before natural wines were even a word. He is uh, rushing the, the, the fresh-pressed juice to the fermentation tanks because he doesn't want it exposed to oxygen. He's, he's following the great winemaking techniques of France, and he's doing it in California at a time when nobody cared about any of these things. So if you read a book called Vineyards in the Sky, which I highly recommend, it's out of print now, but it was written by Eleanor Ray, who's Martin Ray's widow, it goes into sort of this rugged individualism. He's sort of like a cross between um, Howard Hughes and uh, Walter White. He doesn't seem like he suffer fools all that much. And his his stepdaughter ends up writing the intro to the book where she's she's very clear that she did not really like Martin Ray. And she never got along with him. And she found him strident. And uh, he had a very sharp tongue. But at the same time, she respected what he was able to do. And in helping her mom write this memoir, she understands more his importance to California winemaking and his role within the ecosystem. This is all just a, a roundabout way of saying that when you look at the history of California winemaking and you look at where the exciting wines are coming out of today, I still personally feel that Santa Cruz is the most exciting wine region of California. It's also the most historic. And that's what I want to press upon anybody who's just getting into California wine or learning about California wine or wants to learn about California wine. It's the OG. It's where fine wine in California began, and it's where the fine wine industry most resembles the industry from which it evolved. 
going up to Napa and Sonoma is, again, like going to Disneyland in so many ways. You don't really see that in Santa Cruz. There's a there's something to the Santa Cruz lifestyle that is so charming and, again, so nostalgic to my youth. It's this combination of surf culture, skateboarding culture, mixed with organic, hippy-dippy culture, but, again, never off-putting or elitist in any way or trying to use that lifestyle as a way to define itself and, 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 and sell itself with some air of superiority. These are the, the elements that turn people off of fine wine culture. But I want to talk more about this in detail with somebody who I know shares the same love of Santa Cruz wines and the Santa Cruz Mountains region as I do. He's my old colleague from KL Wine Merchants and currently their domestic wine buyer, Ryan Woodhouse. You're you're from England, but you moved to California and you you know you gained this love of Santa Cruz pretty early on, right? Am I correct? Yeah, for sure. So what what was it about Santa Cruz? What is it that that captured your romanticism there? Yeah, I mean, the first time I went to Santa Cruz, we were on a road trip down the West Coast. My wife and I in the back of a Jeep, uh, surfboards in the back, and we just stopped in Santa Cruz and we immediately just loved the whole vibe, the culture. Um, everyone was just super cool, lack of pretense, <laughs> just like... A really really nice town and then you know you fast forward a few years from there we were married moved to wyoming got sick of living in wyoming and we were like hey you know what we really loved santa cruz we should just move there and we literally just packed up and moved to santa cruz uh just from the you know feeling that we had about the place from a couple of day visit previously where did you work when you were up in santa cruz i forgot that you did work for a few different wineries at some point right yeah, first place I worked, like literally the dude said he would give me a job as soon as my work permit came through. So the day my work permit arrived in my mailbox, I skateboarded down the street and got a job at this old school liquor store on Portola on Pleasure Point, uh, Pleasure Point Wine and Spirits. So that was my first wine gig in the US. Um, the guy had an amazing collection of Santa Cruz wines and other California wines and we basically just sold like big cases of beer and like peppermint schnapps and all the Santa Cruz wines sat there and gathered dust. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was weird. He had an amazing selection, but just not quite the right clientele. Or I think, to be honest, he might have been a little ahead of the time for like fine wine appreciation, at least in that neighborhood. Um, but after some time at Pleasure Point Wine and Spirits, I got a job working for Randall Graham obviously one of the legends of uh, Santa Cruz. Um, and actually looking back on it now, it's really cool because it was before Randall moved the tasting room down from out of the mountains. So he was up uh, in the original winery and tasting room uh, up in, you know, up in the Redwoods in the little hamlet of Bonnie Doon. So I did the last, you know, the last year of when he was up, uh, you know, in the old, in the traditional home of Bonnie Doon. And then we opened the new restaurant down on the west side. Uh, and it was right when that kind of west side courtyard over there on, on Ingle Street became like the new epicenter of Santa Cruz wine. You know, this this uh, old area that used to be like packing plants for Brussels sprouts and kind of old industrial buildings, which is now like packed full of little wineries and places to eat and breweries. Uh, and that's really become like a new, at least urban epicenter of Santa Cruz wine. Are you talking about over where Madsen is? Yeah, yeah. So Madsen, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to later, uh, they're in 
that building was originally part of Bonnie Doon's production facility over there. Um, so that that whole building to this day is still like painted red, that red metal that it, the whole thing is painted. I mean, it was painted that way when Randall had Big House Red. So it was painted to supposedly look like this penitentiary down in Soledad. It had like paintings of like razor wire and searchlights and stuff on the building. And like to this day, that whole building is like painted red, like corrugated steel. A bit of, bit of his legacy. One thing that you said that you liked about Santa Cruz when you and your wife drove through was the lack of pretense and sort of the humility of the place, just the atmosphere of Santa Cruz in general. You now live in Napa. And so I'm yeah. sure you've got a chance to sort of juxtapose those two regions against each other. And by no means is this meant to be like a poo-pooing on Napa or Sonoma. It's just more of a glorification of Santa Cruz and how much we love it. But with that in mind, what would you say the biggest difference even now between Santa Cruz and Napa is in terms of wine attitudes and tourism? Yeah, I mean, just like Santa Cruz it, within wine or outside of wine, like everyone in that town can just like 100% be themselves. Like no one feels like they have to like dress away, behave away. You know, um, everyone, it's just one of the most amazing places on the planet, I think, to just be yourself, do your own thing. Um, and like, you know, I think it, I think it's the same with, with wine. I mean, the people that are really into making wine in the Santa Cruz mountains are, are largely into it for the right reasons. Cause it's a really special place to grow grapes. It's not so much like a big brand thing or being in a place that's like, you know, uh, you know, super high end or like globally regarded as like somewhere that's you know fancy in quotations it's just it's like the old school motivations of making wine you know like it's just on that edge of a lot of it's on the edge of that cool climate viticulture and it just makes like super authentic characterful wines um napa yeah i mean like napa i guess to some extent is kind of a victim of its own success um you know the big cult cab era that just shot prices through the roof um it's funny i mean living here in napa now um it's kind of a wine of kind of a place of two halves right like there's the big established wineries commercial stuff um super high-end cult stuff but there's also kind of a, a an underbelly of small interesting stuff going on much like the santa cruz mountains but it's normally like winemakers like they're uh they have a day job and then they make their own cool stuff on the side um so yeah it's, it's they're very different they're very different cultures um there's interesting stuff happening in both places but the cool thing with santa cruz is there isn't much of that big corporate uh corporate stuff i'm a member of Steve Mathiason's wine club, for example. So yeah. big, big fan of Steve. He's he's a friend. Um, and I love Jasmine Hirsch out of Sonoma. So I have, you know, friends that are making really good wines. Not we're not like best friends, but I know these sure. people professionally. Yeah. And um, I like to support what they're doing as a result of my appreciation for what they do. But at the same time, there's sort of this movement in both places where they're moving away from the varietals that traditionally defined those regions as a way to sort of differentiate themselves from Napa as the stereotype. You know, for example, we're not growing Chardonnay, we're going to grow Fermentino. 
And, you know, they're going to go back to the Italian roots. And that's not to say that there's no real history of those grapes. Obviously, there's so many different cultures that moved to California over the years that you'll find old, old vineyards with all sorts of varietals. But they're not embracing the old school of Napa. And what I like about Santa Cruz is going back to your point about comfortable in their own shoes. They're still fully embracing Martin Ray and Paul Masson and everybody that started in the 1800s, they don't feel the need to differentiate or deviate from that path, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's kind of economically motivated. Like, you know, if you if you want to make wine in Napa and you want to make it with like Oakville Cabernet, I mean, your hands are tied pretty much on fruit pricing as a small winery, whereas you can still get Santa Cruz Mountain Pinot or Chardonnay or whatever for, for a pretty pretty reasonable price um cabernet is probably a little bit a little bit more difficult um so yeah i mean i think you know people in napa are probably going to be picking kind of obscure stuff they can get their hands on i mean lots of these people are also making wine in and around napa but with fruit sourced from elsewhere whereas the folks in santa cruz are, are largely like focused on their own specific region and yeah i mean i think they they stick to a lot of the classic varietals. You will see some people, I mean, as you know, the guys at Madison, um, Ken, especially up at Ascona, I mean, that place has a crazy amount of varietals planted. So he's, de- you know, there's definitely folks that are keen to to start experimenting with obscure stuff. But as we, as we've always said at KNL, like, the, the classics are the classics for a reason, right? I mean, like there's a there's a reason why Pinot and Chardonnay and Cabernet just absolutely crush in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's just it's just built for it. The soils, the climates, everything else. Um, so no need to no need to fix it. But really cool to see him doing uh, yeah some obscure stuff up there too. Uh, and then I work with another um, little winery. Have you had the Assiduous wines that Keegan Mayo? makes um old friend of mine but you know again he does the classics he does um pinot and chardonnay from some great vineyards but he's also playing with gruner valtliner and he does some pinot gris from the santa cruz mountains which is really great some malbec uh so yeah there's some interesting pockets of stuff too but the classics still dominate for a good reason going back to madsen those guys are true Santa Cruz characters. They just embody everything that I remember about Santa Cruz from like the eighties and nineties. And here we are in 2023 and there's still, you know, bushy haired kids saying dude and surfing all the time. And, you know, Jeff Garneau, actually our mutual friend said to me that the only people making interesting wine right now are surfers. How, you know, do you (laughs) think that's, do you think that's true? Cause then I started thinking about Eben Sadie and like South Africa and other people. You've met a lot of people surfing in the wine industry, haven't you? Yeah, man, when there's actually a really good correlation of like great places to surf and great places to grow wine. Uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of the great wine regions of the world are along like the western coasts of of continents and countries. And you know, just the way that the weather systems move around the planet through the roaring forties, like they generate a bunch of swell and those waves tend to break on those coastlines uh, and and those same weather patterns moderate the climate in those places so i mean all down the coast of bordeaux there's there's great waves uh, or you know the, the west coast of france and then yeah west you think about western australia in margaret river uh, again you've got a ton of really great winemakers and a great winemaking region and some world-class surf same with south africa um same with california obviously oregon washington uh yeah so uh, and then as I don't know, I mean, as far as the link between surf culture and winemaking, I don't know. I don't know whether it's just uh, 
if there's anything about the creativity and the artistic side of it or whether it's just proximity to to the coast uh flexible working hours probably helps too because <laughs> you know when the when the waves are good uh, you don't want to be tied to a to a desk job um so yeah you know i think there's a few things that work pretty well together what do you think about the legacy of Martin Ray in, in Santa Cruz? Have you have you ever tried any of his wines from Mount Eden? I've I, I don't know if I've ever opened any. I've not had anything of, of, that was like you know by you know grown by him or anything. But I mean, I've had lots and lots of stuff from uh, from Mount Eden over the years, and then the the parcel of vineyard um, that his that that family continues to to have. Um, and I've had the chance to go up there and walk the vineyard and pick fruit from from Peter Martin Ray Vineyard and stuff too with the guys from Birakino. Um, really, really incredible place. Um, I mean, you stand there on that ridge top and you look out over what's now you know Silicon Valley and you can see you know the big Apple complex and everything else. And you know, it's pretty amazing that you're there on the site of these very historic vines and stuff with direct lineage back, um, you know, to to Margot. I think it was Margot, right, where the cuttings uh, came from. Um, and, but at the same time, I'm there picking fruit with a bunch of like pretty kind of new, new school, new wave uh, winemakers. You know, like fruit going back to. Jamie Motley and uh, the guys at Birakino and, you know, people that are now the modern cutting edge of the Santa Cruz mountains and yet still sourcing fruit from this kind of iconic site. Um, pretty, pretty special place. It speaks to the, the lure of, of Santa Cruz. There's a, there's a lure and a lore of, of that <laughs> right. place, right? Where there's something drawing you in and simultaneously there's all this history that fascinates you and makes you want to be a part of it. I mean, how how strongly do you feel that today? Do you still drive up there fairly often or try to visit when you can? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably one of the worst things about being in Napa now is the distance from there. But we've already been back and done staff trips and stuff even since I moved out of the area. Um, you know, and pr pr immediately prior to moving to Napa, I was living uh, just on the edge of Saratoga. So I could just, you know, I was... I was 10 minutes from driving up to, to Mount Eden and Peter Martin Ray and up to Ridge Montebello on the, on the next Ridge stop. And I mean, it is, you know, a pretty, just a really incredible place to, to grow grapes. And I think also like a lot of the people that make wine from there have a respect for the, for the history and the legacy of the place, you know, um, you know, if you talk, um, talk to any of those winemakers, they'll immediately start giving you a history lesson <laughs> on who came before them and, and what they did and everything else. Um, and that, again, you know, talking about the contrast of cultures, you know, some other places, perhaps Napa, I, I hate bashing Napa all the time, but they'll be telling you about, you know, their latest and greatest marketing you know, concept or whatever, uh, and not so much of, of what went before them. Uh, I think most people you'll find in the Santa Cruz mountains, especially the ones working with some of those historic sites, it's always like the place, the terroir, the legacy before anything that they do, you know, or they add to the equation. They're definitely always paying deference to, to the other, to the place, to the history. This is great. Thank you again for taking the time to do this today. It's always great to catch up with you, and I look forward to doing it again sometime.
And that wraps up another episode of the 219 Podcast. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Thank you to my guest, Ryan Woodhouse from K&L Wine Merchants, the domestic buyer extraordinaire, for talking all things Santa Cruz today. I'll see you back next week for another new episode. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>